I'm Greg Bangs of Booz Allen Hamilton, and welcome to Who Will Lead the Next Global Economy, in which our panelists will take a look at innovation around the world. Now, that's always an interesting subject, particularly so given the circumstances we're living in now. Leading this panel is my colleague Don Presley. Uh, He's a senior vice president at Booz Allen, who leads the firm's diplomacy and international development business providing services to emerging market economies in such matters as government transformation, economic performance, citizen services, and humanitarian support. Before joining Booz Allen, Don was a senior, service, senior foreign service officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. With that, welcome everybody, and Don, take it away. Greg, thank you very much, and I'm very pleased to be able to um, lead this panel on this very interesting topic. Now, if you associate being innovative with being hip, you might wonder why this group of men up here um, have anything to say about innovation. But I think we're going to uh, show you that um, we do have something to say about innovation and that uh, the, the dialogue today will be very interesting. Let me introduce my fellow, fellow panelists. On my right over here is David Hale, Mr. Hill is the founding chairman of David Hill Global Economies. His clients include asset management companies in North America, Europe, Asia, and Africa. He also serves as the global economic advisor to the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Mr. Hill formerly worked as chief economist for Kemper Financial Services and Zurich Financial Services. Next to David is Mr. Hikmik Ursik. Mr. Ursik will become president and CEO of the Western Union Company in September, and he's already functioning in that capacity. He began his career in the financial services industry at Europay MasterCard in Austria, and in addition has worked with General Electric Capital. In the center is Mr. Robert Hormatz. Bob is the Undersecretary of State for Economic, Energy, and Agricultural Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. He was formerly vice chairman of Goldman Sachs International. He is the author of several books, including The Price of Liberty. And immediately next to me is Ambassador Klaus Scherioth. Ambassador Scherioth is the German ambassador to the United States. Previously, the ambassador served as state secretary, the highest civil service post in the German foreign office. Now, as the global economy recovers from the financial crisis and our economic interdependence and interconnectedness continues to increase, it has become almost conventional wisdom that those companies, governments, and individuals who are best able to innovate will be the leaders in the next global economy. So today, we're going to talk about innovation in the next global economy. We define innovation as the successful exploitation of new ideas, often involving new technologies or technological applications. Innovation will be essential to helping meet the complex, multidimensional challenges of the future, including challenges like global climate change, fighting global poverty and hunger, and continuing to drive sustainable economic growth. Exciting and amazing innovations are taking place all over the world, changing the way we live, work, and play. From the continuing digital revolution 
to advances in bio and nanotechnologies, inevitably innovation will continue to drive the global economy and those who are best prepared to innovate will lead. So Bob, let me turn to you first. Innovation has been a major focus of the Obama administration. As a member and representative of the U.S. government, can you describe this focus to us and tell us why the administration is making innovation a priority? Well, thanks. Yes, I, I uh, look forward to the opportunities. One of the things I work on in the State Department is innovation in large measure because it's important to look at the United States today in two or through two prisms. One is what we can do domestically to create the high-paying, high-quality jobs of the future. And innovation is key to that. It always has been since the days of Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the world's great innovators, perhaps, unless we forget, the great innovator of our times, of, of, at least of that time, and uh, in, the, in the 1700s and early part of the 1800s. But he invented a lot of things, and he inculcated in the way America looked at itself and looked at the world the notion that innovation was key to the future of the United States and our future uh, global competitive capability. Abraham Lincoln was the only American president ever to have uh, achieved a patent, to register a patent, to have registered a patent. So this has really gone down through history. And now, and the previous panel that David was on and gave an eloquent presentation on, we now realize that a lot of the jobs of the past are not going to come back. And uh, a lot of the industries that have uh, fueled growth in the past are not going to be as dynamic uh, in the future. So what do we need to do? We need to create competitive new companies, competitive new industries, competitive new products. And let me just take a minute to explain what innovation is. We tend to think of it as coming up with new product ideas. But very frequently, it is adopting old product um, and injecting them with new technologies. In other words, making old products better. In many ways, it's also developing new ways of doing business. In other ways, it's taking technologies that have been developed elsewhere and applying them in new ways. One of the great things the United States does is not only create innovative products, but we're very good at product adaptation because we have a very competitive domestic economy. It's very easy to get open businesses and very easy to close businesses if they don't work. David pointed this out before. And a, a lot of American companies with new ideas find it very easy to open uh, a new business. The, the regulations in this country are very, very favorable to doing that. So what we see in this country is not only new ideas being developed, but new ideas being adopted, applied commercially at a very, very rapid rate. And that's the objective of this administration, to, to identify um, not by the government necessarily identifying the individual company or the individual product, but identify the ways in which the government can spur innovation. And it has done this, if you look at the stimulus bill, the American Recovery Act, if you look at the current budget, there's an emphasis on green energy technology, there's an emphasis on rapid transit, there's an emphasis on biotech. There are a lot of areas where a lot of money is being placed into R&D. Also, uh, the, uh, improving uh, the research and experimentation tax credit, making it permanent as opposed to temporary. A number of things are being done to prove the, improve the overall investment environment. 
That's the domestic part. If you look at the international part, I think it's very important to take a look at where we stand in the world. There clearly is an enormous competitive challenge uh, around the world that we have not seen before. We saw challenges, of course, in the 50s and 60s from an emerging Europe, Europe emerging from the war, uh, Japan in the 70s and 80s, but now it's coming from all fronts. And we should not underestimate how effective emerging economies are in developing their own new technologies. This is something we tend in, in the United States to be relatively insular. A lot is going on in China in uh, new technologies, particularly in the green technology area. India is doing a lot in the medical services area. Israel is a very innovative uh, country. There are many very, very innovative companies around the world. Even Saudi Arabia has established a new university, co-ed, focusing on things like nanotechnology. And I think that, and I'll leave with this final point, and we'll go back to this later. I think when we look at this era, you know, there are a lot of things we could talk about of uh, what happened and what's likely to happen over the, over the last 20 or 30 years and what's likely to happen over the next 20 or 30. The end of the Cold War is important. Issues between uh, the Islamic world and the non-Islamic world, there are a whole range of geostrategic and cultural issues there. But I think what this era is going to stand out for most is the rise of the emerging economies, or the emerged economies, as some might put it. This is changing the face of the world. In the United States, in periods of very strong growth, we've uh, achieved growth rates of 2, 2.5%, 3%, maybe 4 We've uh, increased uh, uh, incomes and living standards by, say, five times over the course of the lifetime of the average American. In these countries, they're growing at 7, 8, 9, 10%. Uh, Brazil, uh, and uh, obviously China, India, South Korea, a number of these countries, they're going to increase incomes dramatically more in those economies over the course of the lifetime of the average in individual. And they're doing it, obviously, by hard work, energy, in some cases, low-cost production. But increasingly, they're focused on innovation. And if we're going to compete in this world, we have to keep up in the area of innovation across the board, energy, medicine, a whole range of other things. It depends critically on education. We can't have a world-class economy without a world-class education system. It depends on the right environment, intellectual property protection, which I'll get to when we have a Q&A session. It also involves openness to immigration. I cannot underestimate how important the openness of this economy to new ideas, to new immigration uh, from around the world, to people who are bringing in entrepreneurial skills, want to do research here, want to attend American universities, want to participate in the innovative process here. If we shut this down, uh, or restrict it on the grounds that somehow it protects our economy to restrict the inflow of, of people from the rest of the world. We're going to weaken the innovative process here. It's dependent very heavily on those people coming in and the new ideas they bring and the new entrepreneurial skills. So we have to deal with a lot of the fundamentals to make ourselves not just as innovative as we have been in the past, but even more innovative because the world's more innovative and more competitive. David, you've been doing some research on innovation. Do you agree with this sort of global view that, uh, that Bob was just describing? It's very much a global issue. <clears throat> but what I did the other day was to go over some data to put in perspective how the United States compares to other regions of the world on this issue of innovation and competitiveness. I'd like to spend the next three minutes just sharing the data with you because it does provide, I think, very useful insights into how this issue is playing out on a global basis. The first number I like is the number for business formation by people. 
is this truly is an American strength. Every three and a half years, 11% of the American people launch a new business. Nobody else comes close except for Israel. They're at 10%. The UK is 6%, Germany is 3.8%, most other industrial countries are 2 and 3%. So we truly are, I think, a very, very flexible country by having that kind of new business startup formation in our population. Second important ratio is a country's investment in tertiary education. That means universities. U.S. is by far number one. We're 2.9%. The OECD average for all the industrial countries is 1.5%. Japan is 1.4%. Germany is only 1.1%. But as the ambassador will explain, Germany educates people differently through their apprenticeship program. Private research and development spending is also, I think, an important proxy. And here the U.S. lags a bit. Number one is Israel at 4%. Then Japan, 2.6% of GDP. Sweden, 2.5%, because the Scandinavians are very focused on technology. Then the US and Germany tie at 1.7%, and the rest of the European Union, just 1.1%. China appears on this chart as well, and China is still quite modest. Even though Chinese manufacturing is now as large as American manufacturing this year, its R&D spending is only 1% of GDP. And that's why US business is so concerned about the whole issue of intellectual property rights, because we feel what the Chinese do is develop their economy by stealing our technology. <laughs> if we look at venture capital, the US, again, is pretty good, but not tops. Sweden is number one. Venture capital in Sweden is 0.3% of GDP. The UK is 0.25. The US is 0.18. But that's pretty good compared to the rest of the industrial world, because Europe as a whole is only 0.11. And Germany is very poor at 0.06%. If we look at research workers, for every 100,000 workers, the US ratio, or for every 1,000 workers, I should say, the US, again, places pretty well, but not as num is not number one. Number one is Sweden, 12.5. Japan's 11. The US is 9.7. Germany is 7. The rest of Europe is 6. And China is still behind just 1.5. If we look at IT investment, here China ranks number one. For information technology investment, it's 7.8% of GDP in China. The US is 7.5. Germany is 6.2. The rest of the European Union is 6.1. As Bob mentioned, access to human capital on a global basis is also very important. And here the US, I think, stands out. If we look at the data, we'll see that half of our PhD graduates now and science and engineering are foreign. And they play a major role in generating patents. If you decompose the US patent data for 2006, 17% of all of our patents went to people with Chinese surnames. 13% went to companies with Indi people with Indian surnames. If you break it down company by company, two thirds of all the patents given to General Electric two years ago went to people with foreign surnames, mostly Chinese, mostly Indian. And for Cisco, the number was 70%. If you look at Santa Clara County, based on language skills, it's quite diverse. Santa Clara County, which is Silicon Valley, has the largest number of Hindi-speaking people in the United States. It's number two for Vietnamese, number three for Farsi, which is Iranian, and number four for Chinese speakers. This is very much an American strength, the ability to tap into human capital. But it's probably controversial. My Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders had an amendment last year in the TARP bill that ban U.S. banks from hiring any foreign students. 
as a way to punish them and discourage them from competing for American jobs. But the good news is he's a racist and protectionist. He doesn't speak for the Congress as a whole. Senator Schumer introduced a bill a few weeks ago to give to all foreign PhD graduates in the United States a green card automatically. That's what we should be doing because these foreign students are a very, very great natural resource asset. So when you add it all up, the U.S. places pretty well in terms of competitiveness and innovation. But we can't generalize on a micro basis because each sector is different. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday by a prominent biotechnology scientist, biotech entrepreneur, saying his sector is now suffering because the FDA will not license enough new drugs. He feels America is falling behind. And the country he emulates or respects the most is Singapore, which is now pouring billions of dollars into developing a large and very successful biotech industry. We've recently had some great success in consumer electronics. This new iPad product that was de developed by Apple Computer defies all the old assumptions that we had lost the consumer electronics business to Japan and Korea. And the fact that America has companies like Google tells us that we still, in areas like telecommunications and the internet, are very much ahead of the rest of the world. So we have strengths and weaknesses, but on the whole, the data suggests that America should be, for the next five or 10 years, a country on the cutting edge of innovation and remain very, very competitive in developing new technologies and new businesses. Thank you, David. Hikmet, from the standpoint of a CEO of a global company that relies on innovation and knowledge transfer, money transfer, what's your perspective on this question? Well, I agree with Bob, actually. The governments are doing a lot and the regulators, but um, I'm not sure if they are not confused. As the governments and uh, regulators are confused, we as business leaders are also confused. They don't know what to do with the money. Should they invest more in the innovation, less raise taxes or not? They don't know what to do with the corporate, corporate taxes, where to invest. So we as business leaders can't wait, right? I mean, we, our, 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 our goal is making money and we have to speed up for that, um, which is good actually. You know, confusion uh, does produce a kind of sense of urgency. And uh, we do look for global opportunities constantly. I mean, I was just uh, going after my company's history about innovation. I mean, Westin is 150 years old company, right? We started, you know, uh, transferring money from one village to other village with horse carriages in a very fast way and a secure way in that days. <laughs> and now, uh, you know, we in 1861, the first transaction, uh, trans Atlantic Telegraph was innovated by Western Union. 1869, uh, stock trigger, the first stock trigger was innovated by Western Union. 1871, uh, the money transfer, first money transfer was done, cross-border money transfer was done by Western Union, and so on and so on. Today, we have 420,000 locations globally. We connect 16,000 corridors and about, you know, uh, the world remittance market is about $450 billion. 18% of them is done uh, by West Union. And what we do is that people carry cash to a location and pick up cash in New Zealand, for instance, in minutes. Is that innovative? Some people say that West Union is old-fashioned because people carry cash. So what do you do as a business leader, right? You look at the opportunities. 
And our business is still growing, though. Cash-to-cash -cash business is very important. Today, though, you can also go in a location in England and transfer money to Kenya on a mobile phone and use it via mobile phone and pay your, in M-Pesa, pay your bills via mobile phone in Kenya. You can send money from 19 countries today from West Union locations to Philippines on a mobile phone. I believe also the future will be, you know, the mobile phone. I believe that your mobile phone today where you communicate will replace the cards, will replace the cash, will replace your plane ticket, that's already, will replace all your communication um, um, vehicles. So the innovation is, what I would like to say is that in America, I agree, in the US, in West world, there are a lot of innovative ideas, governmental are doing very hard, but I tell you also that the BRICS and the CBITs, Colombia, uh, Vietnam, Egypt, Turkey, South Africa, coming with such a speed and do invest so much money on the innovation that we can't, re re uh, we can't oversee that. And me as a business leader, we are looking at these op opportunities, how you can do money transfer more innovative way, from horse courage to mobile phones. Thank you, Hickman. Klaus, is there a European perspective on this topic of innovation, and what have you learned from your um, experience in Europe? Yes, there is, but before I come to that, I would like to make a few comments on what uh, Bob and uh, David said. I totally agree with what Bob said, that innovation is key, and that is at least the German experience. We have only two natural resources, coal and salt, not the most important ones. So we, our whole economy is driven by innovation and that we are uh, the number two exporter in the world uh, with 80 million people. The number one is China with about 0.3 billion and they just surpassed us last year. I think it tells us that we in Germany are not bad in making, as Bob said, products a slightly bit better by innovating them, innovating an existing product and combining two innovations to a new one. Now, with David's figures, I, to some extent, I do agree. I do agree that, that for instance, the great weakness and the great strength uh, of the United States, the great weakness of Germany is venture capital. You're absolutely right. And I think uh, Germans are too risk averse. And I think your big strength is that you really uh, encourage risk taking. That's the big strength of the United States. Now, I do think, however, that some of the other figures are, not, are slightly misleading. When you talk, for instance, about university, you said that uh, the percentage of money spent is in the United States almost three times as high. That is only due to the fact that you have a different way of counting it. For instance, we spend all our basic research money uh, for the Max Planck societies, uh, which is a government-run thing. It's not inside the university. They were closely together with the university, but they're not counted in that. And to just give you an aside, uh, they have collected 32 Nobel Prizes, you know, mostly in science. Uh, and so they're not bad, and, but it's not counted there. And for instance, if you uh, consider, for instance, here, a nurse, someone with a college education, 
in Germany, there are special schools for nurses, and I don't think the nurses are worse in Germany than they're here, but they're not counted in your figures. So my thesis is our education figures are even slightly higher than yours. And I think that's, that's one of the key things, because on education, it is, of course, important to not only have the top guys, and there the United States, again, is very, very good, but also to have just regular PhDs. We turn out twice as many PhDs as you do. And also to have a good vocational training system. And that's what we specialize in, that we have skilled workers and who can also really translate the innovation into a real product. And that's why our, some of our industries, machinery, cars, is quite good. Uh, now, there, therefore, I, I think those figures are a bit misleading. Now, what is the role of government and what is the role of Europe? Let me just say a very few words and then we go to the Q&As. Governments have to create a framework. They have to create, for instance, they have to uh, protect those who innovate. That's why you see the rise of German, Germany as an industrial country came when we, when we created a, a patents office. And patents are extremely important. And we still have, per capita, twice as many patents as you do in the United States. And that, I think, is a big strength. You have, but you, have, you need a government protecting that. And there, I think, is a Chinese weakness, as you, as you probably would agree. What else do they have to do? I think they have to create a good tax structure. I think uh, that, is, uh, that is very, very important. And they have to also have a, a whole legal system which is working. They have to, the government has to uh, fund basic research because at least we find out that uh, business is very good in applied research, in, in also in development, but they don't do the basic research. And that's why we, for instance, we have a very high uh, percentage of our R&D which goes into basic research that might not translate immediately into innovation, but in the long run it does. Education we talked about. I think another thing which is important is sustainability. I think a government has, has to see to it that innovation is sustainable. And that's why we, for instance, in Germany, we concentrated on climate change industry, on efficiency, energy efficiency. We concentrated on energy substitution, on renewable energy, because we believe it is important not only to look at the innovation of today, but to see is it sustainable in 10 years. And my second last point is what a government also has to provide for if you really want to enhance innovation and competitiveness is to see that there is social peace. Because the, if there is no social peace in a country, and there I think is the danger, for instance, for China and for other countries, also for India, by the way, if you don't have social peace in a country, I think innovation is no longer acceptable. And that, I think, is key. My last point is cooperation. That's what we do in the EU. We have the so-called Lisbon strategy. We try to coordinate what we do. And that's why <coughs> Germany tried to suggest exactly the same in the European-American uh, uh, relationship. We suggested to have the Transatlantic Economic Council in 2007. It was a suggestion by our chancellor. And the idea is that we, Europe and America, together create standards because standards will be the key for the future. Only if you have your standard, if you have a common standard, you can really set all those forces free. And that, by, by the way, was another reason for the rise of Germany in the 19th century, that we were the first ones to create all German standards. 
And now I think the idea is to have common standards for Europe and America, because if we don't, I think the standards will be created by China. Okay. And a couple points. I think Klaus has made some very fundamentally important points. And let me just pick up on, on a couple. Uh, first of all, protection of intellectual property is critical because if more and more of our industries are knowledge-based industries that are based on new innovative techniques and uh, new ideas, uh, patents, copyrights, other kinds of intellectual property, and we're very vulnerable to countries taking that intellectual property and using it for their companies to compete against our companies. This is certainly true in China, but it's not only in China. It's not just piracy, it is forcing you, something which Chinese call uh, indigenous innovation, which is, it's not really indigenous and it's not really innovation, but it's called indigenous innovation, as a precondition for selling to the Chinese government. Companies are required either to transfer the, the intellectual property to a Chinese company, or the Chinese government will only buy it from a Chinese company. We have been taking the Chinese to task on this issue it was raised when Secretary Clinton, Secretary Geithner were there. I've raised it several times. President Obama raised it in the meeting he had with President Hu. But I think it's very important. If we're going to maintain our strengths and capabilities, we have to be very vigilant in making sure other companies, either by other countries either by piracy or other means, don't take our intellectual property. If they in innovate, more power to them. If they take it from other companies, German companies, American companies, other companies, that weakens our economic prospects and therefore it is a very important thing. The second is the, the environment, the domestic environment, the, the, the body of laws and regulations and practices that foster innovation. We've been having a dialogue with the Chinese and saying to them, if you want to innovate, there are ways of doing it, but you have to protect intellectual property, you have to have good corporate law, you have to have recourse to the courts to deal with bankruptcies. You have to have ease of entry and exit for companies. The Chinese are innovating at a very rapid rate, um, as we're going to see, because they're more and more competitive. But they still need to do a number of other things to improve the domestic environment for their own indigenous innovation process that's really indigenous and really innovative. And the other element is the Russians. Medvedev, as you may have seen, he came out to Silicon Valley. He wants to do the same thing. They're building a new. Uh, innovation city just outside Moscow, where they're getting American companies and others to do innovation. But I met, uh, courtesy of President Medvedev and his advisor, Dvorkovich, who's sort of the Larry Summers of Russia, with 30 of these entrepreneurs, all of them educated here. And the one point they make is that you just can't have innovation. You have to have the culture of innovation. You have to have the corporate law. You have to have the regulations. You have to have the freedom of information and access and, and, and exit in order to have a, a truly innovative uh, environment. And the Russians are trying to do this because they want to diversify away from reliance on oil and gas. So innovation is very much a part, not just of what we're doing here, but of our dialogue with other countries who want to emulate the sort of Silicon Valley model. The last point I'd make, which is, I think, very interesting for the times we live in, and that is we may be experiencing a sharp as we have in the last year and a half, a sharp downturn in the economy. It's picking up somewhat now. We had that during the Depression, which was obviously a much, much sharper downturn. Innovation does not stop during sharp economic downturns. I went back into the numbers. The number of patent applications filed during the Depression was very much the same, relative, you know, a little bit less, but not much, 
uh, compared to the 1920s, the, 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 the roaring 20s. The number of patent applications filed uh, last year during a period of sharp economic downturn was very similar, just a little bit less uh, compared to 2006, 2007, which were boom years in the United States. So innovation goes on. In fact, it may be even more of an innovative period for some people because if you lose their jobs, then they say, look, how do we, how do we make money? They become more innovative. So the innovation process is very different from the cyclicality of economies. And I think this is something very important to bear in mind. The dissemination and the application of innovation isn't as great because you don't get as much demand. But innovation is, a, is, a, is an ongoing structural process, not one that's subject to cyclicality. I, I just want to make a point on the regulation and standardization. Right? Regulations and standardizations are great as far as they protect innovation. The regulations and standardizations can also kill the innovation, actually. If I hear the comments like, we are, have to protect our companies against their companies with regulations, in a global economy as a CEO, I have sometimes a conflict on that. It's not right? regulation, it's rule of law. R rule, well, that's yeah. different from regulation. <laughs> and th that's exa exact, that's the definition of the regulation, or is that rule of law or standardization? Right. As the, because it's, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a global economy, we as CEO are really looking at opportunities where the big opportunities are. Right? Hickman, you we made a we point. don't see that. You Go made ahead. a point earlier that <clears throat> I was thinking about as, as Bob and, and Klaus were talking. As you walk through the meadow, there's a Bill Gates quote that says, Intellectual property has the shelf life of a banana. <laughs> How does government keep up? Right. Does the patent system work? Do the FDA regulations enhance or hold back? What are you seeing from a private sector perspective? Well, first of all, we, of course, uh, you know, I think regulations has to be there and standards have to be there to protect that. That's for us no given. Yeah? But uh, from a private, from a, from, from a, company, global company, to be innovative, we have the same struggles, actually, what governments also have. How do you keep a company innovative? We recently, um, recently implemented a four eyes principle. We call it four eyes principle, which is the innovation, first one. Second one is the incubation, because you don't know if you innovate a product, you don't know if you're <laughs> going to be successful. The third one is Im Im implementation. Then you have to, after the incubation, you have to make money. Right? And the fourth one is the, then you have a core business, improvement, because uh -huh. you constantly improve also the existing products. And if you follow that, that's very important for us. So it's the same struggle we as a government have, how do you keep the innovation? We do also do standards, actually, to keep the innovation also globally. And we look for opportunities, global opportunities constantly on that. It doesn't mean that we have to be in one Sorry. David, do you want to... Uh, no, let the ambassador speak. He had his uh, hand up. So. I, I would just like to, to defend the case for common standards. When you talk to business people, they all tell you that the main hindrance in today's trade is no longer tariff barriers, but it is different standards. And that's also a way of protectionism, by the it way, is, yes. it is. which is hugely used by many countries. And uh, I think we should add that to the list of things which we have to avoid if we want to have innovation. Because only if you could combine the innovation made, let's say, in Germany with the one made in the United States and with, made with the one in Japan to have a new, com to have a yeah. new product, yeah. you're really state-of-the-art. Japan is but, protectionism frequently through safety standards. Yeah, but uh, uh. you see, now, my, my point about why is common standards so important? 
It is so important because it really adds a huge extra cost on products. For instance, we have different standards for safety uh, regulations for cars in Europe and the United States. You drive your cars with 60 miles against the wall, we with 100 kilometers. That's a four <laughs> kilometer difference, but it means you have to do the whole testing again. It adds to every car, which you have about three to 4% extra cost, which is ridiculous. Or for instance, if you take an aspirin here, it's different from the aspirin in Germany, although I take courageously also American aspirins, and, uh, but although they are not EU tested. Uh, but I think all this is stupid. We add huge amount of costs, and therefore our suggestion is to have in this Transatlantic Economic Council a body which puts together common standards for the future, but also for the past either recognizes the other uh, body, in this case Europe and America, the others' standards, or try to harmonize them. Third thing is very difficult because we all believe our standards are the best, but for, for the future, I think we can do much better than we do today, and I think really the benefits of common standards outweigh the disadvantages tremendously. Well, I think we could continue this dialogue uh, for some time, but I do want to give people an opportunity to ask questions from the floor. We'll use the uh, microphone approach, and there are mics in the aisle, so if you'll just um, go to the microphone, we will um, alternate. Please. I guess he's got to turn it on from the back. It's okay. It's on now? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, thank you for your remarks. It was very encouraging, the, the benefits of innovation. But in the future, they depend on the recovery of economies, on the recovery of our financial markets, and on the individual companies as to how much people can invest in R&D. And there is a big difference between the European countries as represented recently at G20 by the German leader, and the United States is represented by President Obama, where the Europeans feel that the improvement of economies must come, the highest priority must be uh, fiscal and getting your fiscal house in order by reducing government spending, increasing taxes, and getting the fiscal house in order. President Obama believes that this your, country your needs... question, please. What is the, what is the panel feel? is the importance of fiscal house getting an import, uh, in order in a country to improve each country or more stimulus spending? The answer is we need both. We need, in the short term, stimulus because we're still coming out of recession. In the last few weeks, the U.S. economies hit a soft patch. But a critical factor for business confidence, household confidence, will be a medium-term strategy to bring down the fiscal deficit. And the reality is U.S. policy is not as stimulative as President Obama said. If you look at the data, the spending on the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, $97 billion, the year just ended in June. This year, $52 billion. Next year, $12 billion. Our stimulus is unwinding. We will have fiscal drag next year, 1% of GDP, despite what President Obama said. What's different is, is the Europeans are actually now going for spending cuts. In the case of Germany, not the case of Germany, in the case of Spain and Greece, large and very dramatic because they have fiscal deficits. In the case of Germany, moderate and spread over three or four years. And because they've been publicly identified with fiscal austerity, he made this an issue. But the reality is, U.S. policy isn't that different. Yeah. The big question coming at the end of this year will be, will the Congress agree 
in December to let the Bush tax cuts expire in January for high-income people. If the economy is still on a soft patch, if our growth rate goes from 3% recently down to 1%, we may decide to maintain all those tax cuts for one or two more years. We won't know until December. Let me, let me put your mind at ease also on the degree of division between the United <laughs> States and Germany on this issue. I was at the G20 and was in these sessions. There, 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 is difference in, there was a difference in emphasis, to be sure. But I think in the final outcome, there was a notion that some countries are in a better position to tighten up right away and others are not. There are some countries, like the southern European countries, that because of the pressure of the markets, have to do it to retain the confidence of the capital markets. There are some countries that are not in that position at this point. I think there was a general view that over a period of time, there needs to be a much tighter set of fiscal policies down at, at some point. But when and how much, uh, and when you look at the communique, was really left to individual countries. So there, there wasn't really the sort of, the press played it up as a big dispute between the Germans and the Americans. It really was not the case. Uh, Chancellor Merkel, President Obama actually had a very good discussion on this issue. So, but, the, but the point as it relates to innovation is, is certainly the case that, that the, the spread of innovation and the ability to apply new innovative capabilities will depend on the, the underlying economy. If you have a weak economy, you're not going to apply them as quickly. Good uh, 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 example is television. Television was really invented in the 20s. It really wasn't used in the 30s very much because people didn't have very much money and very little money was spent on, on, on those kinds of things. After the war, television uh, expanded very dramatically. So, but the innovation process, as I, as I mentioned, really can go on even with uh, periods of, during periods of weak economic growth or periods of strong economic growth. It, it's the dissemination that changes as opposed to the actual innovation. Question. Yeah, I agree with you, Bob. I think the differences are much smaller than they are presented in the press. You're, you're right. The only difference is there are two differences, maybe, in time. Yeah. You know, we start, we believe one should start a bit right. earlier, and the United States a bit later, but the goal is exactly the same, right. exactly the same, to avoid both deflation and inflation. The goal is the same. There's a second, more, a smaller difference. We believe maybe a little bit more than the United States in what is called in uh, the area automatic stabilizers. We spend most of our stimulus right now on automatic stabilizers. Automatic, to, to just explain what it is, it is, for instance, in our case, the support for short-time work. Uh, if you uh, have a company, let's say you have 100, 1,000 employees, and you have only half the orders of, your, of, of previously, in the United States, you would have to sack 500 people. In Germany, you don't sack anybody, but you go on short-time work. And the employer pays all the 1,000 people only 50% of the money because they do 50% of the work. And two-thirds of the rest of the delta is picked up by the government. And that is a that, that, so they earn about 85% of what they uh, did, did earn before. That has huge advantages. It stimulates the economy. You don't have a, a consumption going down. You don't have people lose their jobs. They uh, have the feeling that they still have their place. And it also has the advantage that you keep the skilled labor force. Mm -hmm. And right. there we come to innovation. Right. You see, the German companies, they have all kept their, work, their labor force. 
In Germany, in the United States, you lost 8.1 million jobs in this uh, big recession. In Germany, we lost, lost 100,000. 100,000. And you lost 8.1 million. Because of that, we had 1.1 million. Our economy is only one-fourth of yours. We, learned, we had 1.1 million on short-time work. But the big advantage for innovation is that the companies didn't lose those people. They didn't have to retrain them. They have the skilled people exactly there now when the economy is picking up. And that, I think, is a slight difference. Yeah, and I think, I think yeah. one of the points that I made in one of the other sessions was that we really need a dialogue between the major industrialized countries and others on the question of long-term unemployment because it is a social problem that is going to right. become worse and worse and worse in our societies. And we're trying to do something about it here. Germany, really since Bismarck, has had a very interesting and effective approach to doing this. And we really ought to sit down in the OECD and other groups at a very high level and discuss what we can learn from one another because the social and the political implications of not doing this are enormous. The other point is German economic history and American economic history are very different. The searing uh, impact of inflation is very important in the way Germany looks at the world for uh, when, when it took a million Reichsmarks to buy a stamp. I mean, I, when I was collecting stamps, there were stamps a million marks. So, and our searing impact was the, the Great Depression. So we tend to sort of look at the world with a, with a different backdrop. But I think Klaus's point is right. There are differences, but there's a vast similarity. There's differences in timing and magnitude, but not in goal. But there is one important contrast looming. <laughs> the German parliament last year enacted a balanced budget amendment. And starting in the year 2017, Germany will, as a matter of law, have to have a balanced budget, when the US will probably still have a fiscal deficit of several hundred billion dollars. Next question. Yes, um, my name is Dixon Dahl, and <clears throat> I'm a venture capitalist uh, from San Francisco, and I spend a lot of time uh, traveling around the world, uh, uh, you know, uh, attending conferences like this and sessions, and I wanted to commend David for those uh, fantastic uh, statistics on uh, the American um, entrepreneurship and innovative uh, industry and, um, and the rest of the panel for uh, being one of the first that I've come to in a long time to take a truly global uh, perspective on it. My question is, what statistics um, can be cited about uh, American global competitiveness with respect to the government's role in innovation, specifically um, regarding international tax rates, open visas, um, the FDA stifling uh, life sciences, uh, providing tax incentives for clean tech investments, and finally, another example, the uh, competitive capital markets uh, for IPOs, which are uh, withering away uh, very rapidly here in the U.S., if I might just cite one statistic on that, 100% of the top-performing IPOs that came out uh, during Q1 were for Chinese and Indian companies. There was not a single U.S. company that was in the top-performing list. And then the reason I think this is important, and I, I really do uh, look forward to your feedback here, is that the venture industry has created um, uh, jobs that correspond to roughly 20% of U.S. GDP uh, you know, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. 92% of those jobs that get created happen after companies go public. I think this is actually one of the fundamental solutions, a big solution to uh, the job creation problem that everybody's talking about now, and I'd, uh, I think that government is not attacking it in the same way, and I'd love your perspectives uh, for the rest of the audience on how we can impact government and get them as a partner like is happening in Germany and Israel and China rather than an enemy or an adversary to, the, to our industry. Bob? Well, I don't. David probably has. David, David probably has the statistics 
um, on, he has statistics on everything, and they're all very, very <laughs> useful. Um, but I, let me just try to make a couple points. It's hard to cover all those things. I, I do totally agree that you need, and one of the great strengths of the United <clears throat> States is the venture capital industry. Um, it, is a, it is terrific, it, it, and, and other countries around the world emulate it. Um, it's certainly true also that there has been a dearth of new IPO, American company IPOs. That, that's certainly true. And foreigners come into our market and, and utilize what is a very efficient capital market. Um, I don't know what you can do. I don't think the nature of the IPO market, the nature of the structure of the market's changed that much. I just think you have a lot of companies that in other parts of the world can't get VC money in their own markets. So they see this as a very attractive market to do it. Now, I think that's changing, but for the moment, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be the case. Let me just touch on a, a couple of other points. The government as a partner. That, to me, is extremely important. And, and, and one area that we haven't touched on is infrastructure. I think there is a lot of money out there, both American money and foreign money, that is very interested in investing in infrastructure in the United States. There's an opportunity here if you can develop public-private partnerships to do this, where, you, where the government plays a small role, maybe improving the regulatory environment, maybe providing seed money. That's the history of the United States is that the infrastructure of this country in the middle part of the, of the 19th century um, was um, privately owned and developed with private money, mostly British money. The railway system in this country was not built by the federal government. Federal government gave uh, right-of-ways, but it was mostly foreign capital, some American, some foreign capital. So we can find opportunities for, for partnering. On green technology in particular, a lot of this is going to come from the private sector. The government, by improving the R&D tax credits, making them permanent, sometimes they're sort of light switch, the, the research and, exp and, and experimentation tax credit, which is another kind of tax credit, these kinds of things should be made permanent to create a greater degree of consistency and of stability so people know what kind of tax benefits they're going to get and they don't go on and off. And the last point, you know, the immigration thing, couldn't agree with you more. We have, and, and David pointed this out, I pointed it out, ever, others have pointed it out throughout the last several days, we benefit enormously from these people. The notion that we would restrict them when they come in and go to school here, the way it works now, you go to school here, you get 29 months uh, to work after your student visa is expired, and then you have to go unless you can get a green card. Some do, many don't. That's just the worst kind of thing, because they go, they get a great education here at American universities or graduate schools. They work for an American company 29 months, so they develop an expertise, they know that company, and then they have to go back. So this is the kind of thing we, we don't do very well. Lee Kuan Yew, and I just end on this. I asked Lee Kuan Yew several years ago, do you think the United States is declining or continuing to rise? He said, as long as you keep your borders open to the best and the brightest around the world, you'll continue to grow. If you don't, then the reverse will happen. We ought to bear that in mind. Let's go ahead and take another question. Yeah. Question? Uh, well, uh, you know, one of the factors that uh, the panel has emphasized, and Bob particularly has emphasized, sorry, I should have introduced myself. I'm N.K. Singh, uh, member of parliament from India, belonging to the upper house in India. My question directly is to you, Bob, that uh, one of the key drivers certainly is innovation. But if the current financial meltdown has made the world realize another important paradigm, it is this, that large parts of the world will have to be consumption-led growth. Large parts of the world would have to improve and increase their savings 
and moderate their degree of consumption. Now, if consumption is coming from parts of the world which are somewhat different, and we recognize that these are parts of the world in Asia, some parts of the world in, in, in Latin America, to what extent, Bob, do you consider that apart from innovation, a significant demographic rebalancing would be one of the aspects which will drive the future pace of growth? And to you, Bob, one specific question since you attended the last meeting of the G20. I want to ask you that uh, do you seriously believe that the G20 meetings, several of which, of course, India, we have participated also actively, uh, do you think that it is making a significant progress, apart from rhetoric, in dispelling a growing climate of protectionism all over the world, given the unemployment and job compulsions which some parts of the world are currently experiencing? Uh, N.K., wait a minute. First of all, let me, don't, don't go away. First of all, let me just say, N.K. is one of the really brilliant people who is heavily responsible for the, uh, the resurgence of the Indian economy uh, over, over the last several decades. So you, you really are one of the people who we should be talking to about how <laughs> this emerging economy uh, miracle has occurred because you've been a big part of it. Thanks. Second question is, what do you mean when you say demographic rebalancing? Do you mean immigration from countries that are slowing down to immigration from countries that are having yes, a higher I, rate I, of growth? Yes, I meant that. I mean, I, I didn't, I mean, frankly speaking, I didn't have the United States in mind when I I was wondering, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That'd be another was, issue here. <laughs> that's why I use the word somewhat more uh, in an opaque sense of the term. I meant it in a more broader sense of a global demographic rebalancing. Because well, I wish other parts of the world would have the same kind of an open, transparent policy uh, which the U.S. has been following and which you have also very strongly uh, uh, advocated yeah. for. Well, let me, let, me just, let, me, let me just make a couple points, and I, I think others on the panel will certainly want to comment on this as well. I do think that you're seeing some of this, and of course you see it all the time in the remittances, so you can really document this very well. But if you look... At, at some of the growing areas of the, the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, large numbers of people come from poor parts of the world, and even not so much poor parts of the world. People come from India, uh, from Gujarat, states like that, to, to, the, to the Gulf. Uh, Pakistan, Philippines, uh, Palestinians, although not so much anymore. But, um, but there are large numbers of people who are doing just what you've suggested. They go from countries that have low growth rates to countries that have very high growth rates. In Russia, people come from the Caucasus and work in Russia. Um, China is a little more complicated because they don't quite have the same kind of immigration policy, but they go into Hong Kong, for instance. They go to Singapore from all over the world. So um, they, and, and, and of course they come to the United there States. There are about two million Chinese going to Russia. Two million, yeah, because they, east, far eastern Russia. So. Um, so there are, so there, this is really happening in a way that, and the numbers are quite st striking. Um, I'm sure Western Union has these numbers. The last point on, just very quickly, uh, G20. I do think that we, that the G20 has helped to resist protectionism in this very sharp downturn. Um, I, I, in, in part because of peer pressure, in part because virtually all those countries, except for one major one uh, in the G20, are part of the WTO. Russia is not a member, although one hopes it will get to be relatively soon. And the fact is, 
when you people dis, people disparage the WTO and multilateral institutions, but if we did not have the rules and the regulations and the peer pressure, the peer review of the WTO, now in this current downturn, it would be a lot worse because there'd be a lot more protectionism. The best example, the 20s and 30s, we did not have a World Trade Organization. There was massive beggar thy neighbor policy, massive protectionism, which made the whole thing a lot worse. So we should be happy those institutions exist. Those who disparage them should think of what the world would look like if they weren't, if they didn't exist. Thanks. I just want to make a point on the change of consumption, change of the pyramid, actually, how we business leaders see that as a huge opportunity. I definitely see that globally there is a huge shift of consumption. The consumption is done in the developing country much faster than in the developed country. We as business leaders have to be innovative, and we are innovative, to change our goods to the needs of the new power, the bottom of the pyramid. They are coming very, very strong. I mean, you know, many companies, you don't sell wash powder like in you do in U.S. in five kilograms, right. you sell only 10 uh, grams. And this, that's an innovative idea. That's innovation, how we business leaders adapt our products to that. To add also on that, I saw by myself, you know, India has 50 billion remittance market coming in every year to India. But I saw German engineers working in Indian call center making money there, sending money back to Germany. That's the shift what's happening today and with the world consumption. So I just wanted to add from the business. What you just described is critical to global prosperity looking out 10 years, because one of the causes of the global financial crisis in the last three years was a huge imbalance in which America led the world in consumption, China led the world in savings, financed our budget deficits, financed our housing bubble, <laughs> and helped to contribute to the events that led to this huge economic decline. Here are the two key numbers we have to address over the next 10 years. The American consumption share of GDP is 71%. That probably has to fall by 4 or 5% to reduce our current account deficit and to rebalance our economy in favor of investment and exports. The Chinese consumer share of GDP is 36%, down from 52% 20 years ago. The investment share of GDP in China is almost 50%. The export share is 36%. China will have to have, in the future, more domestic-led growth to compensate for the fact that America can't have consumer-led growth. So what you're seeing in your remittances is a critical part of this whole adjustment process. If Plus. I could add just one word uh, to the G20. I think we should not concentrate on the results of the leaders' meeting in itself. The real work, and you see I've participated in the 34 years in the Foreign Service in about 100 summits of all kinds, the real results are in advance of the meeting and afterwards. Sure, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Bob, Bob, will, Bob will really agree to that. You see, yes, and you see, the real progress we are making, and I think without the G20 process, that's what I would call it, we would be much worse off. Mm. Because, for instance, the Financial Stability Forum has been tasked by the G20, and they do tremendous work. And, for instance, that we in the G20, that we could agree among those 20 nations on the 47 areas where we need to work together is a great achievement. However, I have to say, we have reached results only on 20 of the 47, so that's the bad side. But we have at least agreed what are the 47 problems we have together to try to tackle. And so I think the G20 is much more successful than the public eye sees it. Question over here. 
Hi, I'm Tom Jelton, and I have a uh, practical and a U.S.-specific question, although it may have some implications for other countries as well. I'm curious about your views of the consequence of the collision of two conflicting facts or, or realities. The first one is Robert Humat's point that key to the future competitiveness of the U.S. economy is to have a world-class education system. The second point is the very serious fiscal situation at the state and local level and the imperative to cut, to cut the deficit, a, a point that, David, you made in the first panel. Unfortunately, it really didn't get much further discussion. How can you, is it possible to do both things, to have in this environment a world-class education system at a time when school spending is in dramatic downfall, particularly in places like California, and if it's not possible to do both, what are the consequences? I think it's very clear to me that we will need more federal help in the year ahead to prevent the loss of possibly three or 400,000 jobs in our public school system. Uh, we did get a lot of help from the state governments a year ago. The Obama stimulus package of a year and a half ago had over $100 billion for state and local governments. That's how they coped with the deficit last year of $165 billion. The problem is the deficit in the year we've just entered is still around $90 billion. And if we don't have help, we will not be able to get the tax increases we need because we already have, in the case of California, very high tax rates, not to mention the fact it's very progressive. Over half the taxes in California are paid by 1% of the people. We will have to get federal help. And if we don't get that federal help, it will be catastrophic what happens in state and local governments in the next 12 or 18 months. And it will have you know, long-term consequences. State government tax receipts will by 2013 be back to where they were in 2008. The deficit will then contract to a very modest number. But we're still talking two or three years of what could be very severe fiscal austerity. If I may add of the German experience, you see, we are right now cutting our budget. We are reducing our expenditures because we also have a deficit. And, uh, but we exempt one thing, and that is science, research, development, and education. We have the aim by 2015 to spend 10% of our GDP for those four things, science, research, development, education. 3% uh, for science and research and development, 7% for education. Why? Because we believe that's the only thing we have. We don't have any natural resources. Our only resource is the education of our people. So that's the only thing which is exempted from the cuts. And I think, I, I think that is really very commendable, and it, under, it, it underscores the important priority of the future. And I, I do think, and my worry is, that we get caught up. We need to have very uh, effective fiscal policy in this country over a period of time that leads to um, um, putting the economy on a more stable fiscal footing over the medium and longer term. But as we prioritize, we really have to bear in mind the importance of not cutting back on those critical investments that are needed to make sure we have a competitive future and to make sure our kids have job opportunities in these knowledge industries. And they won't have them if they don't have a good education, if there's not uh, support for basic R&D, if we don't have the kind of, of, of government efforts, particularly in green technology, that we need. So we, we should not get involved in just sweeping decisions to cut everything. We should cut a number of spending programs. I'm all for that. But we have to prioritize, and the, and the intellectual infrastructure, the knowledge infrastructure, the technological infrastructure, and even the, the physical infrastructure that are critically important for productivity, those things really require a very high priority. So we need to do this. In a, and governments are paid to make 
to prioritize. And when we prioritize these kinds of things ought to be very close to the top of the list. I apologize to our questioners, but we're almost out of time. And I'd like to give our panelists an opportunity to kind of give their concluding thoughts around this question of a global economy led by innovation. What are the priorities that you see both from a government and a private perspective? What are the things that can be done to drive an innovative global economy? David, I'll start with you. Well, the number one trade issue is intellectual property rights. The major source of U.S. trade tensions today with, with China is IPR, and that will persist indefinitely because China is now emerging as one of the world's top manufacturing nations. It overtook Germany last year for the first time ever in modern history as the world's leading producer of tradable goods, so we have to have IPR. And back here at home, we need to have good investment policies for education, for infrastructure, for the critical factors that determine productivity. We had a productivity boom in the last year because we lost 8.5 million jobs. Output per hour is up 6% year on year. But last year, for the first time since the Great Depression, the capital stock of the United States declined. That's not going to give us productivity growth in two or three years. We have to have capital spending. We have to have investment. And clearly, as we've talked about here on this panel, the public sector plays a very important role in that. Hickman. Well, I'm looking at... Uh, uh, governments and the most important thing for a business leader is probably speed, less discussion, decision making, to push that, that we could as a business leader also react immediately to the, to the environment, to the needs of the customer. That keeps us then being innovative. The speed is probably the most important, the timing and the speed is probably the most important need we as business leaders have against the governments, right? Yeah, I think, I think we have to realize, as I said at the outset, the, the, the period we're in, our share of the global economy is going to diminish um, because other countries are growing at 6, 7, 8, 9, 10%, and some very big countries at that. So it, that is not what troubles me because that, to some extent, it was artificial that we had at the end of World War II, roughly half of global GDP. It's diminished now to roughly fifth and maybe go down a little bit more. And we're going to see more and more competitive pressures from all around the world, from the big countries like China and Brazil and India, but some smaller countries. You know, there's this very interesting new technology, a company called Ushahidi, which is a Kenyan company that helped us in Haiti to find people when houses collapsed by using cell phone technology. So it's coming from everywhere. The key point is that the Marines had a saying, be all that you can be. I think that's really, that, be, that should be the, the, the motto of the United States. And that is, we, we're not going to be all that we can be unless we have a world-class educational system. Cutting back would be as short-sighted a move as, as I can think of. Uh, cutting back on basic R&D, the same. Uh, restricting immigration of, of talented people would be you know, shooting ourselves in the foot. If we do the kind of basic things, government support for basic R&D, a very good legal environment for nurturing R&D and giving consistency to tax credits that companies can, can get uh, from that, uh, protecting intellectual property both at, both at home and abroad, uh, allowing people to come in from around the world to, to, to go to school here, to establish companies here, to stay here and work in entrepreneurial innovative companies. If we can do that and we do that well, we shouldn't worry, we shouldn't be preoccupied 
with what happens in China or India or elsewhere, we can be very competitive. We've got an economy that is a, a very, very uh, 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 adaptable economy. We adopt to new changes. We can uh, develop new technology and incorporate it very rapidly. If we do the right things at home, we're going to be able to deal with this competitive world. If we retreat uh, from the world and conclude that we can't compete, that others are doing things unfairly, that all these bad things are happening to us, and we've developed a sort of a defensive crouch on this and don't do the kind of things we need to do domestically, then, then that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'm optimistic if we do the right things. If we don't, if we become protectionist, we become insular, then I think we have uh, the, our leadership over a period of time, not right away, begins to diminish. Klaus. Very similar. I think first, education and R&D has to be enhanced. Second, I think you need, and that's what Hikmet also said, clarity of rules. The rules have to stay there for a while. You can't change the rules every one and a half years. Clarity of rules. Uh, the third one, I think, is sustainability. You have to see to it that the solutions we try to argue for or which we, which we push, that they are sustainable and that they don't get us into more difficulties. That, that's why we do climate uh, industry. That's why we enhance energy efficiency industries and also renewable energy. Fourth point, I think social peace. We talked about it. I think it's absolutely essential. If you don't have social peace you can be, have the most innovative society and you still fail. And some of those countries with the highest uh, growth rates will have to see to it that they preserve social peace. And that is absolutely essential. And my last point is, and that's key, cooperation. I think we can only uh, succeed in the future if we avoid protectionist, protectionism and if we cooperate. I think if we don't pool our innovative resources, we will be much, less, much worse off. Please join me in thanking our panelists for a great discussion. <laughs>